the need is really huge. There are kids waiting for um, someone to advocate for them about what's best for them um, within the child protection system. The voice you just heard was Monica Staley. Monica is a volunteer guardian ad litem and court-appointed special advocate. In this capacity, she advocates for the best interests of children who have been abused, neglected, and placed in the child protection system. It's challenging, rewarding, and important volunteer work. Monica's work she does for a living is as a wellness coach and yoga instructor. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. It's a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and Monica really brings forth the information that will let you know how important this is. Ladies and gentlemen, Monica Staley. So here in the state of Minnesota, which is where I live, we um, call the volunteer work that I do guardian ad litem. Um, In some states, it's CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocacy. Um, And in this capacity, I, on a volunteer basis, um, support and advocate for kiddos in child protection. So um, it's, for me, it's volunteer. And at least the most I can speak is for the, in the state of Minnesota, we've got a handful of staffed guardians, we call them. Um, But as a volunteer, I really get to know these kids um, that come into child protection for a variety of reasons, um, get to know my clients and the guardian ad litem program is all about safe, suitable, permanent housing for these kids in our community. So what got you into this? What was the motivation for you to start really uh, spending time volunteering, doing it? Yeah, it's a good question. So Back 10 years ago, when I was 25, I read a book called My Sister's Keeper. Um, have you heard of that book? Uh, I'm pretty sure I've, wasn't there a movie about I think it? So. Yeah, I, I think watched so. the movie. It was very uh, moving, extremely yeah. moving. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I read the book, and I mean, moving is the perfect word. I was, I was completely captured by two characters in this, in the book, in the movie. And before I get into it, the difference between my sister's keeper and the work that I do is my sister's keeper is based in family law court. Um, and what, um, we do as guardians ad litem is in juvenile court. So the difference is I'm working with kids who have been abused or neglected, and that's why they are what we call in the system. Um, but in my sister's keeper, there's this family and, um, one of the sisters is what you consider call a a vulnerable adult. And, um, without getting too much into the details, um, her sister, the vulnerable adult sister had just this absolute fierce sense of love and compassion and advocacy for really creating the best life that her sister could possibly have. And there's this whole dynamic where the parents have this point of view and the, and the sister who is the, what, who becomes the guardian ad litem for her vulnerable adult sister 
is just not in agreement with what their parents are saying is what's best for her. And the judge allows um, the sister to be the guardian ad litem and to really, again, advocate for, you know, what's, what's best and just give her sister the best life possible. And I just was so moved by that selfless, totally just gritty sense of compassion and advocacy. And so I started looking into it. And at the time I was a um, full-time paralegal, so I wasn't going to be taking on um, the guardians and light them in family court are as a paid position, a paid usually full-time, but right. I came across right. the volunteer work and, and I looked into it and I was at a point in my career where um, I felt like I could take on more responsibility, something that was um, going to take a little bit of time, certainly some um, heart investment, and uh, looked into the training and just pretty much um, leaned right into it and learned all I could. The training um, was really thorough, very interesting. Uh, learned about things that I had never had any exposure to um, in my personal life. Um, and so that's my sister's keeper, the book. That's how, that's how I got to know what it was. And then a little good old Google search showed me, um, you know, what I could do from where I was. It's interesting. I, I remember watching that movie and thinking, man, this is just so um, hard to watch. Like mm -hmm. it was just really gripping and moving and stirring. And it just had all the emotions that you could feel about another person uh, for it. So what were some of the interesting things that you said you learned that, you know, maybe hadn't been a part of your life or you weren't aware of that were like, wow, this is very, very different, you know? Oh, sure. I mean, I grew up in a city in the Minneapolis metropolitan area um, that a lot of people consider as a, a, a wealthy culture community. Um, and that's certainly not to say that there's not wealthy kids in child protection, but I just had no idea that there were even families or kids around me that were experiencing um, abuse. Uh, I, I really, I thought, I knew that that existed, of course. I mean, just media and growing up, you, you know that that exists, but I always just thought it was somewhere else, you know, maybe, maybe downtown Minneapolis, maybe downtown St. Paul, you know, more, more in the city. Um, and it turns out, um, you know, abuse doesn't discriminate. <laughs> it's something that every demographic deals with because, um, Abuse exists in humanity and humanity is obviously everywhere. Um, so I just, I learned about what people are going through, what some people are going through in different, um, just different areas of their life and also geographically. I mean, just because you live somewhere that's, you know, seemingly safe and even, even beautiful does not mean that there's you know, not people in pain, um, physically and emotionally. And, you know, some of those people being kiddos, um, I learned the effects of, um, 
chemical dependency. I learned a lot about um, just like, you know, mental issues, mental health. Um, and I learned about families. Obviously, I just had my own experience, uh, my family. Um, but I learned more about the dynamic of humans with different personalities, even if they're related under the same roof. And, and what can happen, especially when you've got chemical dependency and mental health issues and um, lots of other variables um, affecting how someone lives. So how did you, when you were going through this and you were learning, what were your thoughts related to helping? Did it alter your feelings about helping, strengthen your feelings? Well, take me through that process. Mm, that's a good question. That's a good question. Okay, so again, here I am, 25 years old, um, going through this training, um, and there's probably... I don't know, 20, 20, 25 other, um, volunteers getting trained and we hear about, you know, people take this training to add it to resumes, to, um, you know, get to the next step in some sort of judicial space or some board they want to be on. This is a stepping stone. A lot of people don't take seriously and use it for something else. And when I heard that, um, I mean, I was like, seriously, <laughs> I, I, I was, um, kind of viscerally reacted to that. I thought that that was pretty darn awful. Um, and as I, you know, to really answer your question, the more I learned, the more I was like, okay, what can I do? What can I do just myself to make someone's life better, make someone's life safer, let a child know that they are heard that I'm interested in them and that I want, you know, they deserve love. They deserve safety. Um, and they deserve, they deserve family. So what were the next steps after you were exposed to that? I mean, like, were you thinking like, Hey, how do I jump into this quickly? Or were you thinking this is going to be kind of a long-term process or even like, did you, th how long did you think you'd end up doing something like this? <laughs> I don't know that I was thinking I'd still be doing it in 10 years. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, but the way at least um, at the time and here in Minnesota that the training was, um, you got your first case while you were still in training. So you had, you know, the support of your peers, the guardian ad litem system. Um, here in Minnesota, I've got, I still have a mentor. So there's lots of support. Um and I had some exposure of courtrooms being a paralegal, but I don't think that that really offered me much because I'd never been, you know, the one speaking, never been the one opining in, in a courtroom. Um, so I leaned in pretty heavily to my coordinator, to my, originally we, we get a mentor as well, another um, guardian volunteer. And I just kind of took it one step at a time. My first case, um, my client was eight weeks old and his mom was 16 years old. And um, I just learned, you know, you get what we call discovery. Uh, it's 
more often than not now it's electronic, but at the time it was, you know, a stack of paper about an inch thick, um, learning about the background of uh, my little client and his family, particularly his mother. Um, so yeah, I just, I, you know, the training told me to figure out as much as I could about my client, where he's been, where he is. And, you know, we don't know quite yet where he'll go, but um, the objective of the Guardian Ad Litem program, the CASA Minnesota program, Court Appointed Special Advocacy, um, is always reunification with the family. And the space is the Guardian Ad Litem. Well, I should say everyone cares about the child, but in my work, I communicate in my volunteer work, I communicate with social workers, um, everyone in my child's life, um, teachers, therapists, parents, friends, any, however I can get information. Um, and the social worker does provide services to the children, but they are really about providing services for the parents to get us all down the road of reunification. Um, so for my, this, you know, talking about the case that I had 10 years ago, um, you know, the, the county or the social workers are um, putting together a case plan for, um, it was mostly mom that was involved, a 16-year-old mom, no chemical dependency, which is about mm -hmm. the only case in my, in my volunteer career that chemical dependency has not been, um, if not the number one issue, a uh, issue at least. Um, but she had severe mental health issues. So lots of resources, lots of services. Um, and that case, um, and actually coming back to your question, when you become a volunteer guardian ad litem, they ask for a 18 month commitment. Um, my shortest case has been maybe about five, six months. My longest case has been over three years. So I knew I was at least going to be in it for 18 months. Um, my first case ended up being about just under three years long from start to finish. So from the beginning, I just, I knew I, what I needed to do as a guardian ad litem is find out as much about my little client as I could and be in communication with the other parties of the case. That is the county, uh, the judge, um, parents, attorneys, and myself. So, oh, in your time doing this, what's been the hardest part about it? Like the most challenging aspect of it? Well, I'll just straight up say, volunteer guardian ad litem work is, um, in my 35 years on this planet, one of, if not the most challenging and rewarding things I've ever spent time doing. Hmm. There are challenges in every case, every, um, every family, every situation brings different challenges. The most challenging um, happened not my, with not my current case, but the prior case, which I actually had twice because the kids came in and then they were reunified with their mother. Um, and then the kids came back in about nine months later. 
So all in, I had known these kids almost their whole, I mean, five mm-hmm. for five years. The, the youngest I've known is his whole life. Um, and without getting into the details, the most yeah. challenging piece of it all was a hearing where we were determining um, placement for these three siblings, three siblings, one mom, two dads. And in Minnesota, the statutes state that siblings are to be placed together. And the statutes state that siblings are to be placed with kin or relatives. Well, I couldn't find the county, that's the county's responsibility, could not find a relative to take all three kids. And um, so the older two were going to go with a um, paternal grandmother and the youngest was going to stay with an adoptive um, mom and dad set of set of a couple. And I wanted the kids to stay together. I wanted them all to be with the adoptive family with the, yeah. I'm sorry, the foster family. And, um, the judge looking at both of these statutes, you know, could not with all the facts. And this is, I mean, this is two, two years into the case. Okay. Um, could not order with both statutes in mind because there was not a placement that would, that was a kin relative placement that would have all three children. Mm. And the judge ruled to separate them to place the older two with family and keep the younger one with the foster family. And uh, that was, that was pretty brutal. Um, That was, that was a tear streaming down my face in the courtroom day. Yeah. Never, I've never had one like it. Um, I just could not believe that that's what was in the best interest of the children. So that was, that was tough. That was challenging. What's the emotional toll on the children? You know, when you're talking to them, obviously not naming anybody and things of that nature, but just in general, what are some of the thoughts and feelings that the children have about the process? So I have never had a child over the age of seven. Okay. And there are so many kids out there. There are so many cases. You could honestly say, I want a eight month old boy that lives in, you know, South Minneapolis. And you have the choice of 20 families to work with. Um, I have chosen to work with younger kiddos which obviously limits their ability to verbalize what's going on. Um, But, you know, reflecting back on training and my dad, who is also a volunteer guardian ad litem, which I think is amazing. You know, he's a full-time financial advisor. He's almost 70 and he, he just saw the work I was doing was totally moved and, and became one himself. So, so, so proud of him for that. That's just, that warms my heart. Um, but he has, he has, uh, teenage boys and, um, so I'll just speak to my own experience. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not their friend, but I need to be a trusted, you know, I, I'm to stay relatively objective 
Okay. And yeah. this is a heart bit. This is a heart situation. So it's, <laughs> there's definitely, um, some, uh, you know, there's not a fine law. There's not a, you know, clear line in the sand. Um, but I really, I need to be approachable. So I need to develop a relationship with these kids so that they can share with me. And of course I'm looking for red flags. I want to know, you know, if they've been injured, if they've been hurt because, so I have to see them once a month, which is particularly frightening right now because we're not having any home visits. So, you know, right now, if you're listening to this later, we're, um, May 19th, 2020, in the middle of the coronavirus, COVID-19, and obviously no home visits. So that's, I mean, we're going to be feeling the effects of this from a um, abuse and child protection standpoint for years. Um, But uh, it's really, it can be hard. It can be hard for these kids. You know, they even if they've been physically abused, emotionally abused, they love their parents. They love their parents and they want to be with their parents. And thankfully it's not just, you know, me having this conversation, you know, hopefully they're seeing a therapist, you know, the social workers making her, his or her visits. Um, So everyone in these kids' lives are, are here to really just support them, hopefully. Um, But I have seen it be, I have seen it be challenging. I've seen kids' personalities change depending who they're in front of. Um, and a lot of times they just want to go home to their parents really no matter what. What is it about that? If they're in situations with the parents, it may not be a healthy situation. The parent and child, that the child still wants to be around the parent. Okay, so what's the question in there? Essentially, children seem to uh, be so pliable in the sense, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I maybe I'm misrepresenting this because I'm thinking about how children have the capacity to love uh, other people even when they're not treated well by those people. Mm-hmm. And how kids, I'm interested kind of the kids' mind state if they want to go back to parents who are not treating them well. Yeah. Well, I think it's, um, I'm just going to speak from experience because I don't, I don't, you know, have a child psychology education, but, um, you know, I know that that children thrive in a routine, even if it's an unhealthy one. Um, you know, there's just because a parent is getting high in a room and someone finds out and calls the police, you know, that child doesn't necessarily know that they're being parented by a high parent. Mm. So if it's not, if it's not physical abuse or worse, um, it's, they still, they just, they want to be with their parents. Um, and more off my cases more often have been around um, actually not physical abuse per se, um, but more so parenting while under the influence, mm-hmm. um, bringing people who shouldn't be in the home in the home. And then, you know, there might be physical altercation between adults and the kids are around. Um, 
or, you know, driving when they shouldn't be driving because they're impaired. Mm-hmm. And that is obviously mm-hmm. a, a physical risk. Um, but the kids don't all, the, the kids don't always know. Um, and I'm careful to, to remind them that their parents love them, but I'm not there to tell them why they're out of their parents' home. Um, I'm, right. I'm, I'm there to gather information, make sure that they are physically safe wherever they are. If they're in a foster home, if they're, you know, with a, with a relative, um, and just remind them that their parents love them, but that it's not safe for them to be with them right now. Now, you said you worked with the younger children, like seven, you know, below. What was the decision-making process in working with younger kids versus older ones, say like teenagers? Yeah, I think it came from, so the first case was just assigned to us. And like mm-hmm. I said, my the mom was 16. And I found that challenging. Now, she did have, like I mentioned, a really severe mental health disorder. Um, But I just, I mean, I was only 25 to start and I think I just, I wanted to work with younger kids and I just don't know, like reflecting on that question now, I'm not sure I have the, maybe I do, who knows? I don't, I don't feel like I have the, like I could serve an older child as well as I can serve a younger kid. And I think that's, you know, knowing, knowing my limitations, knowing how I'm going to do this volunteer work as best as I can. And there are more younger kids than there are older And the older kids need, oh my gosh, do they need advocacy? I'm just not sure I'm the one to do it. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. It sounds like you were like very honest with yourself and what you were able to handle or what you, you know, desired to do uh, Mm -hmm. with that. Do you think that's a, is it a common thing? Is it hard to work with teenagers for a lot of people versus the little kids? Well, I don't know about you, but I was a terrible teenager. So I mean, <laughs> I was a very good teenager. See, I was a goody two shoes. So I had a great experience being a teenager. Oh, heck no. I was rebellious. I ran away from home. I was like, I was naughty. Um, yeah. So, you know, I guess I just, I would like to get a hug from my guardian client, not some other physical painful response, which can yeah. happen. Um, yeah, I guess it's a, it's a more semblance of control, I think is probably what it is. And in a space where there's just not a lot you can depend on, I think me choosing to work with younger kids is, um, kind of some semblance of, of control and just really knowing what I'm, what I know that I'm good at. Yeah. Oh, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. I was just curious, you know. Um, yeah, that's a great question. It's kind of like, you know, I think I had mentioned to you that we adopted our daughter um, in our previous call. We started talking about adoption and stuff. And, you know, some people, they want newborns. Like, that's mm-hmm. all they want. And some people, they have a heart for wanting, like, maybe older kids, six, seven years old, or even people who are like, hey, I'll take somebody who's considerably older and try to help them in their lives. And I think it's kind of important just, you know, to understand the different motivations for people and that 
they're all take different special people to do work with different ages of children. You know, it's they all have their challenges uh, with it, whether it's a newborn or a six year old or a 15 year old, you know, for that. So I just was finding it interesting. Like, what was your reasoning for yeah. working with kids that were that age? And I find it like, what was the what's been the most gratifying part of, of doing this in this time for you? Well, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot. I think, um, you know, my first case, he was adopted by his foster family and shoot, he's like 10 years old now <laughs> and he has a completely <laughs> different life. Right. I mean, he's got, right. and, um, that's, that's amazing to have been a part of. Um, I think sometimes as the guardian ad litem or really any, any one in this space, um, if foster or if um, biological parents have never been in the system or if they've been in the system and they've had a poor experience, you know, they're very defensive. They're very, why are you here? And I get it. I, and I absolutely get it. Um, I did have one mom um, biological mom who, who did have her child, her situation was, um, she was holding her son and her boyfriend pushed them down the stairs and they were injured, but they were removed from his house. And she, he was the, um, the client, the, the child was assigned a guardian ad litem myself, um, to make sure that, you know, he was safe. And the county was supporting mom in making safe choices and, and providing safety for her children going forward. Um, but when I met mom, she was like, what are you doing in my space? Who are you? Mm. You know, what's, what is this all about? And I am so grateful that God blessed me with a really great, like, EQ. <laughs> I, I can just, I just yeah. know when people are uncomfortable. I know when people are open. Um and I'm grateful that I have that. And that's served me well in this space, um, dealing with different types of humanity. Um, yep. But she, she didn't like me. She didn't like me at all. And I have to say, it was, you know, you're not supposed to take anything personally, but I was a little hurt by that. <laughs> it was my, yeah. my first experience like that. Um, but I'll tell you, about two years after that case had closed, she... Um, reached out to me. My, my, um, Facebook account is public. I've chosen to do that for my wellness business. So she found me quite simply because my maiden name was very unique and, um, sent me a message saying that she was sorry for treating me that way. And it eventually did get better in person, but here in this message, she was saying, um, that she just didn't, you know, she felt like I was in her business and she didn't know, but that yeah. she was really grateful for the stand that I took for her son, the stand that I took for her. And she sent me photos of, of the child and just said, you know, that I made a really big difference for him, for her, for their family. And she'll never forget me. That's really nice. So That's when really I work nice. with kids who can't verbalize, you know, there are, there's still people that I get to connect with. There's still, you know, I still get to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly, everything in between. 
So that was, um, that was pretty wonderful. So where do you see this work going for you in the future? Like, I mean, you've been doing it for 10 years now. What's the vision for the future of this work for you? Yeah. So I, my last case ended um, in an adoption in September. And um, I only ever usually take one case at a time. Um, like I said, I, you know, I've got a full-time wellness business. I teach yoga um, kind of part-time and obviously have a family. And I have chosen to take one case at a time. Um, that said, after a case is over, especially one as emotionally draining as the last one I had, um, I took a couple months off and it worked out. It was the holidays. and um, But really, even though this is really stinking hard and it's challenging work, like I said, it is rewarding. And because I know how vast the need is only in my own community, I'm not sure I'll ever go, you know, a season in life without being in child advocacy work. I just don't think that I can know what's there and that there is something that I can do and not do it. So, and that's actually how I got to be on the board for the state of Minnesota is because it's kind of an interesting story. You, I'm not sure if I shared it with you when we first connected. Um, this was like four years ago. I was single and dating and, you know, you're getting to know people. And I shared that I was a volunteer guardian and I them and all these dudes, all these guys had no idea what that was. Yeah. And I just, I was like, you know, I, I knew there was a point in my life where I didn't know what that was, but it's such a big part of my life now that I was just like, gosh, no one, none of these guys know. So um, I started wanting to have informational meetings. And if you've ever been a part of a nonprofit, you know that if you show any sign of leadership, they want you on the board. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, now for the last a little over three years, um, I hold biannually because the training occurs twice a year. So right before training, a month or so before training here in Minnesota, um, I hold informational meetings and it's really just word of mouth, um, you know, social media, but you know, there's probably 20 people that show up and that is, um, that's kind of my space within the board is information and recruitment. I mean, I could talk about guardian ed light on work for a long, long time. Um, and so it would be great if there was someone else who could, who could, uh, you know, be doing this with me right now. There's not really here. Um, and in fact, I'm actually the only volunteer guardian ad litem except for, um, the president who is on the board. Other, otherwise it's just, you know, different people with different skill sets that wanted to help the organization. Um, so yeah, I think, I think being on the board and that, you know, information and recruitment capacity is an incredible form of contribution to the kids, to the community, to the organization. And uh, I wish there was more, more of that happening. Um, but 
I think I'll, I think, you know, I'll keep doing that. And like I said, I don't think there'll ever be a full season in my life as long as I am able to leave my house physically well, where I won't um, at least have one case. That's awesome. I mean, how do you think that um, this has changed your life doing this work and all aspects of your life, um, personal, mm -hmm. professional? How has it kind of those tentacles uh, gone into all parts of your life? Yeah. Um, well, certainly on a surface level, offered me quite a bit of perspective that I didn't have before. Um, just awareness, um, you know, that, that doesn't leave you, even though I'm not constantly working in my volunteer capacity, um, just having a respect for people who are different, um, cause you just don't know how they got there and they certainly don't need your disrespect added onto it. Right. Um, so yeah, just a really, um, understanding of humanity that I didn't have before. Um, in my business, I'm in a connecting business, you know, people, people choose to improve their health or bring in a second stream of income for their families because they can connect with me and they feel supported and they feel, um, both a sense of leadership and a sense of service. And I think, I think, you know, part of that skill set that I have was developed in training to be and, and performing as a volunteer guardian ad litem. Um, also, um, this goes a little bit along with differences of people, but just, you know, I don't have the fear of difference that I may, that I may have had before. Um, my level of courage and boldness has increased. Hmm. Um, because, you know, there's some uncomfortable situations, but guess what? It's not about me. It's about the kids. And uh, that's what advocacy work is. <laughs> um, it's, it's putting, putting your, you know, fears aside and caring actively being compassionate and advocating for someone else. Um, I think of our own family. We got married last year and, you know, want to expand our family and bring kiddos in. And um, I don't know what that will all entail and look like, but I'm certainly um, not against adopting. I don't know if it would happen in child protection. I don't, you know, I don't know how that will turn out, but um, certainly have a new respect and understanding for people who do adopt no matter what the circumstances, no matter, you know, where the, where the kids came from or the reasoning for the family. Um, but just to open your home to a human being that you are not blood related to mm -hmm. that you love, you know, as if they were absolutely your own from the beginning. That really moves me. I tell you what, it. It has certainly moved my life. Um, sometimes I have uh, my daughter do like the intros to the podcast or she does the outro to <laughs> all of the podcasts and everybody loves hearing her little baby sounding voice. She's eight. <laughs> and uh, I look at her and I think that's such a miracle, you know, mm -hmm. and I think about 
meeting her birth mother. We met her birth mother in a tiny room at Catholic Charities, and she was pregnant with Rosie about eight months along, you know, and I think about all the emotion and the time invested and, you know, making this plan for this baby that we were going to adopt this child mm. and, and that the biology wasn't important to us. It was just having an experience, that experience and helping to change the life, the, the generation, generational change for this child and to break the cycle of what uh, their family was going through for mm. that. And never forget, oh. never forget on the, that the birth mother wrote the reason why she wanted to place Rosie for adoption when she was born is because she didn't want her child to grow up in poverty. Yeah. And she wanted her child to have a shot at a good life. And she picked us. And I think adoption's amazing. It's incredible. And I think sometimes when people say, well, I want to have a child that is like my own child. And I will tell you, having an adopted child, you will not know the difference. <laughs> you will just know love. You will know love. You will know amazing love. The child will know that love. The biology will not be the difference. I promise you, it will not change how you feel about the thing at all. Mm. It creates a different layer of love, an added story, an element. So, you know, when you were talking to me about the child advocacy work and stuff, it just really hit me because I have a special respect for people like yourselves and what you do, Monica. So I'm grateful to know someone like you. Well, likewise, and thank you. Um, and I just have to, I don't know if you were going to ask me this question, but I'm just going to answer it anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know what the point is of sharing something without having an opportunity for, for people to look this up for your own life or someone that you mm -hmm. know. Um, so what I would do is if you're listening to this and if you, um, it's a time commitment. The question I usually get asked is how long, you know, what is the time commitment? And I always answer on average, it's about five to 10 hours a month, um, depending on the case and the situation and geography and, you know, how many kids there are, but about five to 10 hours a month to, you know, impact a human life, if not more, if there are siblings. Um, you do not need to have any legal experience. Um, there is, at least in Minnesota, there's an application, there's a um, interview, there'll be a background check. Um, but, you know, what they're looking for is, are you a compassionate human being? Do you have yeah. a sense of fierce advocacy? Are you, you know, organization certainly helps, um, but, you know, are you... There's, there's not a, an experience. And even if we've, I've got, you know, pedi pediatricians who've, who've taken my educational or my informational meetings who are like, I know everything about kids. Do I have to take the training? Yeah, you do. <laughs> everyone, <laughs> everyone takes the training. Um, you know, what your, again, what your background is does not matter. What matters are, you know, the, the, the heart characteristics that you're going to bring to this work. And to these families, these kids. Um, and, you know, wherever you are, every single state in the United States of America has a guardian ad litem or CASA uh, court appointed special advocacy program. 
Um, it's a it's a court appointed position. Every child in child protection um, needs a guardian ad litem, and I'm talking juvenile court um, when where kids have been abused or neglected specifically. And um, I would just Google your state and either guardian ad litem, and that's the word guardian, and then AD, and then L-I-T-E-M, or court appointed special advocate, and your state, and something will come up. <laughs> one, of the, <laughs> one of the first sites. Or um, the national website is nationalcasagal.org. So national C-A-S-A-G-A-L dot org. Um, and that would be a good place to start too. And really, I just would say like, if you are, if someone's listening right now and we haven't, we haven't covered everything, you know, Darian, Dr. Darren, you've asked great questions. We haven't covered everything, but um, this isn't something that you have to know all the details about. If your heart is telling you that this is a place that you want to serve, um, shoot, I'd lean into it. I'd, I'd get, you know, get a hold of the resources that you need to do to get the ball rolling because there are a lot of kids out there who need advocacy and it's not for everyone. But if you have an inkling that you think it's for you, I would lean into it and, you know, just see the level of contribution that, that you get to have um, one kid at a time, which makes a difference in this whole world. I mean, well said and amen to that for sure. I mean, thank you. Monica, so much for your compassion, your kindness. I sense it completely listening to you. You know, that's one of my favorite things about this podcast. It's just listening to different stories, different passions, the effort people provide in different areas of life that they're completely into and have a heart for. And you certainly have a great heart for this. And I can relate on my level in terms of going through the adoptive process for my daughter and being around amazing social workers and people who are advocates for children in different environments. So um, thank you so much for being on the show. And I look forward for, to people hearing this. Uh, it's a really important cause, I think. Good. Me too. Thank you for having me. And thanks for, thanks for hearing the message. You got it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.